We are going to uh, jump right in <coughs> to today's <coughs> conversation. Um, last week, we looked at uh, the subject of politics, uh, a very non-controversial subject. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a very, uh, another non-controversial subject in the topic of religion. Uh, maybe you've heard this before, but uh, two topics you're not supposed to really talk about or get into with people uh, are the subjects or the topics of uh, politics and religion. So that is where we are headed uh, today. And my first question is, uh, why are we even talking about religion? Um, like, what's the point of, again, this whole series called Conversations uh, is intended to really get us to think deeply about uh, what we believe and why we believe what we believe and how we even came to believe what we believe and really examine ourselves as what we believe. Is it even true? Is it even right? Um, and then hopefully, uh, as we're learning and growing and being engaged with these conversations, these conversations are spilling over into the conversations uh, that we're just having with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and so the subject of religion clearly is a very controversial uh, subject. Uh, I mean, if you thought politics was controversial, I would have to say religion, uh, I would dare to say, is probably even a little bit more controversial uh, than religion. If you want to kill a conversation real quickly, uh, just tell someone that you're a Christian and tell them specifically that you believe in Jesus and tell them specifically that you actually believe Jesus is the only way that we can have a relationship to God. If you want to have a conversation killer, just say that, and not only will it stop the conversation, but I think what you're going to have to brace yourself for is hearing words like intolerant, unloving, exclusivist, religious snob, ignorant, uh, and those are probably the nicer words that people would say to you. Uh, but behind your back, if you make any claims about Christianity and Jesus is the only way, uh, you will be dubbed with some of those uh, not-so-nice adjectives. Um, so this morning, I want to, these are some things that people have said, and maybe they're things that uh, you've heard, but as I read through some of these things, I want to ask you not only just to listen to them, but as you're listening, I want you to think about, well, what would I say? How would I actually respond if someone said something along these lines uh, to me? Would you be prepared to give an answer? How can you have such a narrow and naive beliefs? If there really is a God, and he is a God of love, as you claim, would it not make much more sense for this God to reveal himself in his own way in each culture and to provide saviors within each of them? Why should we believe that there is only one way to reach God and that Christians are, happen to be the lucky ones who know about it? What would you say to that? How would you articulate a response? How about someone says this to you? How can you believe in the midst of so many religious beliefs that there is only one way to God and that those who do not happen to accept it are eternally damned? Like, would you really, uh, do you believe that? In the midst of so many different world religions, you're going to claim that you know the one, the right one, and that everyone else is eternally damned. How about if someone said, surely there are many ways to get to God? Each culture has its own religion. The most important thing is not so much what religion one belongs to or what happens, uh, one happens to believe. The crucial thing is that one is sincere and lives a morally respectable life. Why do Christians have to be so exclusive and insist that theirs is the only right way? What would you say to that? How would you respond uh, to that, that statement? How about this one? You mean to say that you believe 
that the roughly 5 billion people on the planet who believe in gods other than the God of the Bible are wrong and that only Christians are right. You believe that if it were all to end today, that 5 billion people would be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. How could you possibly believe something like that? So this is why religion uh, is a controversial topic, is a controversial subject. But why are we talking about it? And my simple answer to this, if Jesus was right, if what Jesus said, if what Jesus claimed to be, then this is a conversation that we need to not only have here, but this is a conversation that we need to be engaging people uh, with in our lives. Uh, so I, I understand that it's a difficult, it's a challenging conversation. Those four statements right there, uh, I would venture to say if most of us were honest with ourselves, we wouldn't have a well-thought, articulate answer to say, Wow, I, I don't know how to respond to that. Uh, so my hope today is to really walk through the topic of religion. And uh, specifically, I'm going to ask three questions. And really, the three questions are going to be, is Christianity exclusive? Uh, question two, isn't religion just a matter of geography? Meaning, Michael, if you were born somewhere else other than the United States, you would just be that religious affiliation. Uh, and question three we'll finish with is, what really matters most to God? At the end of the day, what is it that God is most concerned about, that God most cares about? Uh, before I jump into those questions, uh, I generally have been starting with some observations. Uh, today, I'm just going to give you one observation, and it's a pretty key observation as it relates to Christianity and the Christian message, and it's simply this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning the message of Christianity, is incredibly offensive. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity is an incredibly offensive message. Jesus said that. The Bible affirms that. Actually, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's foolish uh, to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks. He's talking about the gospel, uh, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So this message that we as Christians hold to and, and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died, that Jesus was resurrected, is utterly foolishness to some and absolutely uh, offensive to most. Um, so Scripture makes clear it's an offensive message that the gospel will offend people. But I do want to start, as we're talking about religion, just because the message of the gospel is offensive to people, that doesn't give Christians the right to be offensive. It doesn't give Christians the right to be obnoxious. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, in our society, strike one against Christians is there have been plenty of obnoxious, arrogant uh, Christians uh, in their approach of communicating the gospel, and that's a big strike. Strike number two, I would say, is we live in a culture that does not want to be offended. Do not tell me anything that's offending, uh, that would offend me. I don't want to hear it. I have a, a right by being a citizen of this country for you not to offend me. So don't say things that could potentially offend me. And so that's strike two. Christians have been obnoxious. Uh, Christians have been offensive. And, and strike two would be we live in a culture that just doesn't want to be offended. And so the question could simply be, well, how do we do it? How do we commute, uh, communicate an offensive message in a winsome, in a loving way? And I like this uh, quote from a, 
a guy who works at the C.S. Lewis Institute, he said the defense of the gospel is most effective when combined with the demeanor of Christ. Meaning when we are communicating these amazing truths about God and Scripture and, and Jesus and the message that Jesus has given us about who he is and what he's done, that we need to communicate this message, albeit offensive to people, with the demeanor of Christ. And if you consider the demeanor of Christ, uh, he had great passion, he had great conviction, but people knew that he cared. People knew that he cared deeply about them. Now, why is the message of Christianity, why is it offensive? Like, why is it, why do people get so offended when you just mention the name of Jesus, when you mention the name of Christianity? And I'll give you two quick thoughts on why the message of Christianity or Christianity is so offensive. Number one would be the content of the Christian message. The content of the Christian message is completely unappealing. It's offensive. It's not attractive. Now, if you were to look at, say, Buddhism, for many, Buddhism is attractive because they don't believe in a personal God. So you can be spiritual and you can just do whatever you want. You can live life however you want to live. Uh, because there's no God to give an account to. Uh, so that's attractive to many. If you're Hindu, well, that's attractive because it's a religion that is just steeped in philosophy. It's a religion that is just steeped in Mother Earth and caring for the environment and caring for uh, with reverence uh, the Earth, as it were. And it's, as uh, P-Dub mentioned, uh, it's got millions and millions and millions of gods to choose from. And that's appealing because I can just pick which one I like and pick which one works best for me. Now, the list could go on and on of why so many other religions are attractive. But the reason that Christianity is unattractive or offensive in our culture is Christ. If you're going to follow Christ, the message Christ gives you is follow me and die to yourself. Follow me and surrender your will to mine. Follow me and die to sin, repent of sin, repent of selfishness, repent of self-centeredness, repent of self-dependency. Clearly, that is not a message people like to hear. And so the content of the Christian message is offensive because Jesus tells us to come and die, not come and just do whatever you want, uh, as other religions would say. I'd say the second reason that the Christian message is offensive is the claims of the Christian message. So not only the content but the claims. This is what Jesus said. Jesus told them, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus made clear uh, that there's not many ways. There's not a lot of ways. That there is only one way. There is only one road, one path uh, that leads to God, and it goes through Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. And then later on, Jesus in John chapter 10 says this, Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. So not only is the content offensive to many, but the claims of Jesus are unattractive because he didn't give any other options. He's it. He's the only option. Now, I wanted to be clear as I'm reading those verses and you hear people say, you know, Jesus is the only way. I, I didn't say that. 
That's not coming from me. And I didn't hear that from another man, as it were. That's what Jesus said of himself. So our question as Christians is, not do, do I say this, but do I agree with it? Meaning, do I agree with what Jesus actually said about himself, specifically the ways that we can have a relationship with God? Now, have you ever noticed, though, you could be in a conversation and happen to be talking about religion, and you could be talking about Buddhism, uh, Islam, you could be talking about being Hindu, you could talk about pretty much any spiritual religious background, but the second you mention Jesus, it's done, it's over, and you're going to be accused of being intolerant and exclusive. It just it ends the conversation. Now, why is that? Because one could say, well, that's just not fair. Why is it okay in our culture, in, in this culture specifically, to talk about everything, but you, the second you talk about Jesus, you're accused of being arrogant and intolerant. And my answer of why that is, is just simply, there's incredible cultural inconsistencies. This is what uh, D.A. Carson, in um, uh, a great book he just put out not too long ago called The Intolerance of Tolerance, uh, when Christians make exclusive claims about Christ as the only way to salvation, and therefore condemned, um, I'm sorry, when Christians make exclusive claims about Christ as the only way to salvation and are therefore condemned as a group for being intolerant, then those who are doing the condemning are, of course, marginalizing Christians by declaring them to be among the unenlightened and so are displaying their own intolerance. What his, the whole point of the intolerance of tolerance is those who claim tolerance fail to recognize their inconsistency in being intolerant towards, towards those who follow Jesus. So we as Christians live in a culture where there's just going to be inconsistencies. Now, I don't believe it's my personal job, and I would say I don't believe it's your personal job to point your finger out to people and say, well, you're just an inconsistent hypocrite too. Stop pointing your finger at me and calling me arrogant and intolerant. I feel like our job as Christians is not to point the finger, but rather is just is to love them and trust that through our relationship, through our conversations, God is going to use us in the way that we embrace them, the way that we encourage them, and the way that we also challenge them to communicate God's great love for them. I've said this, I think, throughout this whole conversation series. Our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is not to get to the end of a conversation and be like, see, I was right. Let me hear it. Yeah, you were wrong. Like, that's just not the point. Our hope is that we're winning people, that people are, are meeting Jesus, that people are meeting and seeing who God is and what God is like, and ultimately beginning that relationship with God. So that's my one and only observation as we start this conversation on religion is the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically the message of Christianity, is offensive. So knowing that as we start this and knowing that as you would have conversations with friends, with family, with coworkers, with neighbors, with whoever, you need to approach this conversation with great care, with great sensitivity, with great humility, but we also can approach this conversation with some wisdom, with some logic, with some intellect uh, to go with it. But it's got to be coupled with not just conviction, but conviction coupled with some tenderness. All right, so question number one. Here we go. Is Christianity exclusive? Ready for this answer? Yes. Absolutely it's exclusive. 
Of course it's exclusive. Here are, when I'm answering the question, yes, what does, what does it even mean, Christian exclusivism? So if I'm saying that Christianity is exclusive, here are four things that I would say here is the, within the Christian message that we are exclusive about. Number one, Jesus Christ is the unique incarnation of God, fully God, fully man. So he's not prophet. He's not just a good guy. He is fully God. He is the incarnation of God, both fully God and fully man. Number two, only through the person and work of Jesus is salvation possible. Number three, the Bible is God's unique written revelation that is true and authoritative. Number four, where the claims of Scripture are incompatible with those of other faiths, the latter are to be rejected as false. Now, just go with those four claims to work tomorrow and read them and see how that goes. I, I promise you, you'll be uh, pegged as uh, arrogant, intolerant, exclusive. And my challenge to you uh, in conversations with people, again, is not to be uh, just argumentative, but in your approach, well, Christianity is exclusive, but to follow it up with the question, but let's be honest, isn't every other world religion, and I'm talking about the major world religions, as P. there's hundreds, thousands of different religions. But as I'm talking this morning, I'm primarily focusing on the big ones, uh, Buddhism, Hindu, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. So if, if you ask people, yes, Christianity claims exclusivity, but let's be honest, doesn't every religion, isn't every religion exclusive? And I think people have kind of checked their brain at the door. They don't assume that every other religion is exclusive, just Christianity. But Muslims radically claim exclusivity. Muhammad, made very, Muhammad, the prophet, made very clear there's only one way that you can have a relationship with Allah. There's not a bunch of ways. There's only one way to have a relationship with Allah. Buddhism, if you didn't know, was born, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but Siddhar Gautama, uh, who was a man who eventually found enlightenment, and they began to call him Buddha because he was the enlightened one or the awakened one. He broke off, he was Hindu, and he rejected the primary tenets of the Hindu faith. And so Buddhism was born out of Hinduism as a rejection of their, their tenets, uh, Hinduism is uncompromisingly exclusive in things like the law of karma, the authority of Vedas, which is their holy scriptures, and reincarnation. Meaning, if you say, well, I don't believe in karma, I don't believe in reincarnation, or I don't believe in your holy scriptures, well, you're wrong. That's an exclusive claim that they make. Atheism rejects completely the viewpoints of those who believe in God. They're intolerant towards people who don't believe in God. Baha'ism, which claims to be a cosmic embrace of all religion, excludes those that are considered to be exclusivist, which doesn't make sense. So, again, I, when you talk to people, again, I'm not saying you take a hammer and you're trying to beat them over the head, but yes, Christianity is exclusive in its claims, in the claims that Jesus made. But let's be honest, every world religion is exclusive. Uh, Ravi Zacharias said it like this, It is clear, abundantly clear, that all religions without exception are exclusive. Buddhism is not Hinduism. Islam is not Christianity. Jainism is not Judaism. Each 
has its uncompromising moorings. Each is distinct from the others. Now, we live in a culture that just loves to believe that all paths will eventually lead to God. And the reality is that's not true because not all religions even claim that. If you've ever heard of a, a TV personality named Oprah, she said, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Now, if I could ever sit down and interview Oprah, I would say, Oprah, are we really to believe that the path of atheism that says there is no God, the path of agnosticism, which says I can't even know if there is a God, the path of Hinduism that says there are millions of gods, and the path of Islam that there's one God, but he needs to be appeased through good works, and the path of Buddhism, which doesn't even claim a divine being, it's just all about enlightenment. Do you mean to say, Oprah, that all of those paths somehow, some way, are going to lead to gods that they don't even believe exist, or millions of gods that do exist. I don't, I don't know how she would respond to that, but it's not even logical to make a claim like that, that all roads, it's nice to think that, but not even any religion actually claims that a bunch of roads will actually lead to one place. Now, what's behind the desire just to have many roads? I've encountered this a lot. I'm sure that you have, is we just are people who love, we just... There's got to be more than just one way. What is behind that desire? And again, what I would encourage you to get to is what this really comes down to is a rejection of truth. We, again, live in a culture that does not want to believe that there is an absolute truth, that there is a truth that is true for you, true for me, regardless of who you are and where you are and what country, what continent, regardless of anything, we like to reject the idea that there is one truth. And again, uh, Ravi Zacharias, is inc just in his story alone is just incredible of how he grew up in India and Hinduism and how he came to faith. But he said this, truth by definition excludes. We have to understand that by definition, truth excludes the denial of what it asserts. If truth does not exclude, then no assertion of truth is being made. It is just an opinion that is being stated. Anytime you make a truth claim, you mean something contrary to it is false. Truth excludes its opposite. Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, about truth and why we have such a hard time with the concept of absolute truth says this. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, well, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right, that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line, we can't all equally be right about the nature of God. So it sounds nice that what's true for you is not necessarily true for me, and we, we just what this comes down to is do you believe that there is an absolute truth? And my answer to that question is really driven by Scripture. And Scripture makes clear, yes, there is truth. There is an absolute truth, an objective truth, and it's a truth can be known. It's not subjective truth, meaning what's true for you is not true for me. But there is one truth that is true for all of humanity. That is the, the line in the sand which most people will say, I can't agree with that. 
But to say that there is no thing as truth is an unlivable lifestyle. I challenged you guys a few weeks back of, you've got to take what you believe and follow it to its logical conclusion, to its logical end. Someone who claims that there is no truth or there is no absolute truth, uh, it becomes an unlivable, unsustainable life. Now, why do people have such a difficult time with truth? And I'll give you three very quick reasons. I encourage you to write these words down. Number one would be choice. We are a people that love choice. We are a people, uh, live in a culture that thrives on choices, meaning don't limit my choices. We're not going to actually decide on anything, but I want to at least have choices. Choices over truth. Number two would be change. We live in a culture that does not want anyone telling us that we need to change. Tolerance provides a very convenient cover for selfish and sinful living. Meaning, if we choose to believe that there are many truths, that in essence all religions are essentially the same, well then, I don't have to take Jesus very seriously. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to bend my life to, to him and to what his, his call is. So number one would be choices. Number two, just a ref- we don't want to change. And I think number three is fear. Specifically, those who claim to know the truth live and act superior to everyone else. There's a fear that if you claim to know the truth, well, that's arrogant, it's pompous, and you will view and treat everyone else as inferior to you. Why? Because you know the truth. Now, unfortunately, Christians have acted in this way, and that's actually hindered and it's harmed the message of Christianity. But if you are a Christian, you would know better than anyone. You have no reason, no cause to feel superior to anyone because the whole message of the gospel is Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. You didn't do anything. In fact, you couldn't do anything. Jesus did it for you. And so within the message of the gospel is not a message of you're better than someone else. Within the message of the gospel is you needed someone else to do something for you that you could not do on your own. Again, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, says this, in the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so that we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. Christians are not accepted by God and have relationship with God because we somehow did it better than the Hindus, somehow did it better than the Buddhists. We didn't have some secret, so to speak, that we discovered. As Christians, we should be incredibly humble because we viewed ourselves as wretched sinners who needed a Savior, and we see that God provided salvation through his son, Jesus. So, The question of, is Christianity exclusive? Absolutely, it's exclusive in its claims. But so is every other world religion. What is the problem for most people? It comes down to truth. Can we know truth? And Scripture makes just crystal clear that truth, it comes to us. This is John John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So truth comes to us. Scripture says we will be guided into truth by the spirit of truth. 
John 16 says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Scripture says truth can be known and truth is going to set you free. I love John chapter 8. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. So Jesus is saying, he's not only claimed to be the truth, but he says, then you will know the truth, meaning Jesus, and the truth or Jesus will set you free. So scripture is very clear. We can know truth and the truth is not just propositional knowledge or theory. Truth is found in a person, specifically in a relationship with Jesus. So that's not an easy question to answer someone, uh, but I'm hoping that's a, a thoughtful, respectful way that you can deal with a very challenging question is Christians are intolerant. Christians are exclusive in their claims. Now, let me ask question two. Isn't religion just a matter of geography? Meaning your religion or faith is just a matter of where you're born. Example, if I was born in Morocco, wouldn't I be Muslim? Because 99.9% of the Morocco uh, population is Muslim. So just by default of being born there, I would be Muslim. Or if I was born in India, you'll either be Hindu because about 80-85% of India is Hindu, or you might be Buddhist because the other 10-15% to uh, is Buddhist. Now, if you were born in Thailand, it's almost guaranteed that you would be Buddhist because, again, over 95% of Thailand is, is Buddhist. So I'm not suggesting that ge uh, geography doesn't play a role in one's religion. Clearly, it does. But in a lot of the studying and reading, a, a, a guy that I just continue to come back to is Ravi Zacharias. And in his search for truth, he said this, a search for one true God in a land full of gods is a very daunting task. But what the gospel declares is that God is greater than geography. So you might be born in Morocco, you might be born in India, you might be born in Thailand, Wherever it is you are born, the gospel, God, is bigger than the geography. This is what, I don't know if you've read this recently, but Acts chapter 17 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So it's God who gives all men, not just Christians, but gives all men, as Scripture says, life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Do you ever know that about Scripture? That God is actually in charge, in control of geography in the exact time, in the exact places, in the exact lands, in the exact ethnic cultures. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I am so encouraged when I read that verse because it just reminds me simply that God is sovereign over all things, including your birth, of your birthplace, your family, your culture that you were born into. What Scripture says 
is God perfectly places people where they can be, where they would reach out for him. And guess what? Whether you're in Thailand, whether you're in India, whether you're in Morocco, or wherever you might be, God is there. God is close. Now, uh, how could someone who lives in Morocco, let's be honest, it's a great verse to read, but how does, it, how does this work? How, how does God reach someone who is Muslim and they live in Morocco? Because if you have 100 people, 99 in like a half of them are, are Muslim. So how does it work? Now, if, if you've ever done any studies on uh, Muslims and their testimonies of how they've come to faith in Christ, they will say two things. Number one, through the love of Christ expressed through Christians loving them. Through relationships. How does someone who grows up in a Muslim context and culture, whether it's Morocco, whether it's here in America, uh, wherever it might be, how would they ever come to know the truths of, of Jesus Christ and the claims that Christ made? Through Christ expressed through Christians loving them. And number two, and I find this so just encouraging, visions, dreams, and supernatural means. Now, if you know anything about the Muslim faith, they have probably one of the most complicated, intricate doctrines of angels uh, and uh, visions and dreams. Uh, it's a very complex system. And isn't it amazing how awesome is it that God uses dreams and visions to reveal himself to people within a culture that just already has a heightened sensitivity to things like visions and dreams and angels? Countless stories are told of, man, you're from Morocco. How did you? He appeared to me in a dream. He appeared to me in a vision and revealed to me uh, that he was, he was the way. So I'm not suggesting that those are the only two ways, but the two primary ways that people who live in a land that does not promote the message of the gospel, how do they hear about Jesus? Through Christians and through God just doing supernatural things and appearing to people in dreams and visions. Ravi Zacharias said it like this, There is a sovereign plan in creation where each person is assigned a place at birth. God knows where we will be born and raised, and he puts us in a position where we might seek him. We are clearly told that whatever, uh, wherever we live, in whatever culture, in whatever nation, he is within reach of every one of us. That's coming from a man uh, who grew up in India. Now, I could say, well, I got a, I got a personal story of this because best friend sitting over here, Sri Lanka, and millions, hundreds of millions of gods, and yet... God somehow revealed himself to P-Dub. And now P-Dub has a platform in hundreds and thousands of people's lives to talk about who Jesus is. Well, how did that work? Well, God strategically planted in place P-Dub where P-Dub would come to know who Jesus is. So is it just a matter of geography and our religion is just geography? Certainly that has influence, but the gospel is greater than just someone's geography and God's sovereign over where you were born, where you live, the family that you came into. And he used all of those events in your life to get you to a point where you would reach out for God. And you might be here today coming from maybe a very different faith background, and you're here today for the very reason so you could hear someone 
audibly say to you, you're here today because God is close. You were strategically placed here today in the sovereign plan of God so that today could be the day that you begin the journey with, with God through Christ. Let's finish with this last question. What really matters most to God? At the end of the day, what is it that God really wants from us? We live in a religious world. I mean, billions and billions and billions of people all have religious ideas and understandings and beliefs. But at the end of the day, what really matters most to God? What does he want from us? wanted to ask you some questions um, as I answer this one. And I'm asking these questions because uh, I was the guy who kind of grew up uh, thinking that what really God wanted most from me uh, was actually just to be religious, uh, was to be just morally good. So how many of you grew up feeling that what God was most concerned about was you being good, being a good moral person? Basically, what God was most concerned about was just don't mess up. Don't sin. Don't mess up. That's what God was most concerned about for you. How many of you grew up feeling like that in some way God was just disappointed with you? That you just always felt like God was just kind of shaking his head at you because your performance never was good enough. And so you just continue to, I'll, tr I'll try harder, I'll, I'll do more. Under this belief that I just, I got to work, I got to perform, I, I, I've got to do enough in hopes that God would somehow be pleased with me. I think if most of us are honest, we'd have to say, yeah, I felt like that a lot. And maybe some of you here today and you'd say, I still feel like that. Somewhere along the line, you and I were convinced that what mattered most to God was just a good showing, a good performance, just be a good person. And what I want to share with you, before I say what he wants, I want to share with you what he doesn't want. And what he doesn't want is simply this. He's not looking for you to be religious. He's not concerned about outward appearances. We may be impressed by people who look spiritual, who act spiritual, who talk spiritual, but God is not concerned about outward appearances because, let's be honest, anyone can appear spiritual. Anyone can play the part. Anyone can put on the show. Anyone can perform. It might impress others, but it doesn't impress God because what God is looking for is the heart, is inward transformation. Jesus just called out the people in his day who were religious hypocrites. They were playing the part. Jesus said this in Matthew. Everything they do, it's for show. Matthew 23, 27 through 28. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said, you're... Everything you do, you're doing it for a show. God can see through that show. Whitewashed tomb, man, it looks like an amazing tomb. But inside that tomb is just deadness. So what God doesn't want from you is performance, good works. He doesn't want your show. What God wants with you, and I just encourage you to write this in capital letters, is simply this. He just wants relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you. 
What God wants and what God made possible for us is a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. You see, our sin, our rebellion, our hard-heartedness separated us from God, but God loved us enough to bridge the gap, and he sent his son. He sent Jesus to restore, to reconcile, and to redeem us to a, a relationship with himself. If you want to know what sets apart Christianity from other, every other uh, major world religion, is that God came to us. It's not the message that work your way to God. It's the message that God came to us in the person of Jesus. And the message was not be good enough, be moral enough, perform, work hard. The message was simply have, have faith in Jesus, that God came in the person of Jesus. So you could easily hear the message, well, he just wants relationship. Doesn't he want obedience? Doesn't he want worship? Doesn't he want serving? Doesn't he want giving? Doesn't he want sacrifice? Well, yeah, he's God. But God does not want us doing those things in hopes of getting something from him. He wants us worshiping and loving and serving out of the overflow of the relationship that we have with him. A favorite verse of mine is... uh, simply in John 19, verse 30. And I think I like it so much because it's so easy to memorize because it just says it's finished. And that's it. And I will either live my life trying to prove that Jesus was kidding or Jesus was wrong when he said it was finished, or I can fully embrace what Jesus said when he said it's finished, meaning there's just nothing else I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing that I could ever do that would actually make God love me less. And when I really believe that truth, that what Jesus did was enough, that when Jesus said it was finished, he wasn't kidding, that just sets me free. I can just begin to enjoy my relationship with God. I can just enjoy and not have this fear that, gosh, I'm going to do something that could separate. I'm going to do something that maybe God would condemn me. If when Jesus said it is finished, It just frees me to enjoy my relationship, God. It frees me to just rest easy in God, that I have peace with God. And it's not based on what I did or didn't do. Everything is based on what Jesus did, what Jesus said. It's finished. So in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been made right with God uh, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. So when I really embrace what Jesus has done for me, I can enjoy God and I can just rest easy in God. Bottom line is God's not looking for you, for me, for anyone to be religious. He's looking and desiring for you and I to just enjoy walking in relationship with him. Religion just will invite you to continue to perform. Uh, Religion will just continue to invite you to work. But this is what Jesus invites you to. James 4, come near to God or come near to you. It's not a message of work hard, be moral, be good. Jesus said, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. That's it. It's amazing. It's amazing that God's done this for us. It's amazing that I can be set free from trying to earn something, from trying to work for something, and try to perform for something. What God wants for you, what God wants for me, what God wants for all of humanity is a relationship, and he made it possible through Jesus. One day I will stand before the throne of God. 
One day you will too. One day everyone will stand before the throne of God. And God's question simply might be, why would you come into my presence? Why would you enter into my kingdom? And the ultimate answer is that God's, well, what did you do with my son? I don't care if you were Hindu or, or Muslim or Buddhist or Baha'i or what did you do with Jesus? And how we answer what we did with Jesus ultimately is, determines our relationship with God both now and forever.